0: Welcome to the Working Well Podcast. I'm Tim Boris, CEO of Fresh Wellness Group. This show explores the diverse aspects of workplace health and personal performance. On the Working Well Podcast, we dive into the foundations of what makes wellness work in workplaces around the world. We connect with corporate leaders, executives, and industry experts who are helping make life more awesome at work and home. Join us to learn workplace wellness best practices, personal performance tips, and access resources to jumpstart your personal and corporate programs. Brian Krupp is the Chief of Research and Distinguished Vice President at Gartner. He oversees the lines of business that support Chief Human Resource Officers and their leadership teams. He works with this cadre of leaders to develop strategic plans that will attract, groom and retain top talent. Dr. Kropp has authored more than 40 research studies at Gartner, led more than 200 strategy sessions with executive teams at Fortune 100 companies, and more than 300 executive education sessions across the globe. He's a frequent contributor to CNN, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other top media publications. Brian has been named to Human Resource Executive's Top 100 HR Tech Influencers and Engagedly's Top 100 HR Influencers lists. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Working Well podcast. I'm honored to have you here. And yeah, we can't start any interview without saying, what have the last 18 months been like for you? It's uh, been crazy all over. And I know everyone has a unique situation.
1: Yeah, you know, some ways I'm sure it's pretty similar to others with balancing uh, kids at home. uh, You know, my wife in the office upstairs, me in the office downstairs and trying to like balance all that. But the, um, the thing I have to you about a little bit though is we're one of those families that got uh, not one, but two COVID puppies because <laughs> we had one dog before and we thought you know, getting one COVID puppy was a good idea. And then my very persistent daughter who I love dearly for uh, about seven or eight weeks straight every day came in and was like, daddy, can we get a beagle puppy? Daddy, can we get a beagle puppy? Daddy, can we get a beagle puppy? And eventually uh, that happened. Uh, so, you know, having a lot of dog in the house is probably the best way I can describe the the last 18 months of what we've got. So if you see anything walking around in the background, it is likely dog related of some
0: sort. Absolutely. Well, our kids, the
1: door opens up, you know, it's, it's a dog coming and checking things out.
0: (laughs) Well, kids are very good at being persistent that way. And, and ours are still home uh, in Canada. We start our first day of school is tomorrow. So it uh they're still home so if we see them running around in the background that that's what it is (laughs) (laughs) and so in in your line of work as well from i've said to a few other people we're going through the biggest experiment that's ever Mm -hmm. happened and there's so much data so much research out there what are some of the things jumping out most to you uh especially over the last few months with people getting back to work
1: yeah, you know, so there's there's um, a variety of things to kind of think about and look at. If we go all the way back to where we were in like February, March of last year, um, one of the big things that we certainly saw during that entire time period uh, and what we were concerned about was, well, um, with the movement to working from home, are our employees going to actually get work done or are they just going to sit around and kind of watch TV and eat pizza all day and take naps? Are we actually going to get things done or not? And one of the big things that we've learned is that our employees can be incredibly productive and high-performing working from home versus coming to the office. And all of the data and evidence suggests that that, in fact, is true, that that performance has not suffered. Then the other thing that people were really concerned about during this whole period was um, uh, will our employees be resilient or not? Will they uh, be able to find a way to make it through or not? And when you think about all of those challenges and all the concerns that we've had about the the mental health of our employees, about uh, the capabilities of our employees to kind of make it through, there's huge amounts of concern around that. But one of the things that we're really struck by is that even with all these concerns about our employees being resilient, they actually made it through in a lot of ways. They in fact were incredibly resilient, but the question becomes at what cost? And while they're able to make it through, they were knocked down so many times and they kept getting back up. What was the real true cost of that? Which is something that, that we don't often think about, but you know, it's interesting. Our very nature as human beings is to find a way through, but it's just how difficult it is. from that perspective. So a lot of focus and attention on, on that. And then now there's an enormous amount of attention that, that executives are really focusing on and thinking about as uh, workplaces kind of open up, then shut back down, then kind of open back up again and shut back down again, and literally we we're collecting data on this last week. And what we found is, um, 66% of companies have delayed their office reopenings uh, because of the Delta variant. And so, where a lot of companies were planning on reopening their workplaces in the fall, as schools open back up, now most of them are saying, uh, "We'll see you in January." Uh, from that perspective, there has been a real shift out. So, you know, put all that together. Uh, I think my biggest takeaway from the last eighteen months is that what we know this month is different than what we knew last month, and it's going to be different next month. What we know and what we're doing and what we're talking about—that's that's probably the biggest takeaway from this whole experience.
0: Yeah, and you know that that brings up a great point. And to the the bigger picture perspective, research and data is it's always changing, and you're you're able to pull out new information as things shift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I. You know, in, in a world of misinformation where everyone with a Facebook or a TikTok account is an expert or influencer, how do you get like valid, solid research and data to shine through?
1: Yeah, it, it's incredibly tough. Um, we're a little bit lucky slash blessed slash hardworking kind of depending upon, you know, the, where we are in any given day. Uh, but we survey about a million people per year. And we ask them on an ongoing basis, all sorts of questions about the performance, the relationship with the manager, uh, overall feelings of health and wellness, kind of you name it, anything about work, we're collecting survey-based data. Uh, we also run the exit surveys for about 300 companies. We run the new hire surveys for about 400 companies or so. Uh, so we collect all of that data. We also uh, download a copy of every job posting that's put on the internet effectively and analyze that to understand what it is that companies are working for, uh, looking for from a talent perspective. Uh, we uh, survey heads of HR every month, and we usually survey about 300, 400 or so to get a sense of what they're thinking about. Uh, and then the other part of it, we have just within it, uh, our HR practice in Gartner, we uh, have, I don't know, upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 conversations a month with those executives in a much more qualitative sense. So. We put all of that together. We analyze all of that to try to figure out what's actually happening. And it used to be the case that we'd figure out an answer to something, uh, and then that answer would be good for a couple of years. Uh, and now we find out that, that answer to something is good for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months if we're lucky. So just the, the cycles of everything has gotten so short that you have to be constantly on top of it. And the other part of that is just to be willing to say, "Hey, what I thought I knew." last month might not be true anymore and okay to admit that the world's changed and your beliefs and advice uh, might need to change along with that. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. And that, um, because you're typically dealing with C level or at least VP executives Mm -hmm. and you're getting really good quality information. How, how are you seeing the communication throughout companies being able to Share that information with employees. Yeah, because they're um, not getting the employees that are not getting that information. Typically, oh, for, the, for, for, the,
1: for the most part, no. Um, so here's uh, here's something really interesting for you. Then this is work that we've been doing really recently about um, as we switch to a more remote slash hybrid world and there's fewer employees in the office and a lot of that informal communication starts to go away. Do employees actually have a good sense of what's happening at their company and The vast majority of them say no. uh, That they've lost sight as to what's going on. Not only in terms of what the company is doing, what the company is trying to accomplish, which is really important. Because that lack of transparency, that lack of understanding, creates all sorts of perceptions of unfairness. Like, I don't know what's going on. Someone else has better information than me. Uh, I feel like I might be treated poorly because of that. So there's all sorts of questions there. But where it actually starts to play out, or in addition where, where it plays out, which is really, really scary, is um, uh, lack of information that managers have about their employees. So there's kind of a communication question about helping employees understand what's going on, but the information gap actually will be the most problematic where it's managers not understanding what their employees are actually doing. So, you know, I mentioned a little bit ago that all of the data that we've looked at, employees that are working remote or hybrid, their performance levels are give or take the same as employees that come into the office. You don't see any consistent differences or any consistent changes or patterns in office versus remote from a performance perspective. But uh, the majority of managers disagree with that fact. So about two-thirds of the managers believe that employees that come into the office are higher performing than employees who work from home. A similar amount say they're more likely to promote someone who's in the office than somebody who works from home, even if their work is the exact same. And they're more likely to give bigger comp increases to people that come into the office than people who work from home. So that is bad by itself because it means bad performance management, bad decision making, bad reward strategies. Uh, But I'll layer something else on top of that, which just makes it downright scary and wrong, which is uh, men are more likely to want to work from the office and women are more likely to want to work from home. So managers are biased against people who work from home. Women are more likely to work from home once the pandemic's done. And the reason why they're biased is they have bad information. You put that together and the gender wage gap that exists in a lot of places, and we can debate how big or small it is, and I'm kind of the fine details of it, but it's there and it's real. Um, uh, it's gonna get worse. And the gender disparity in senior leadership positions is gonna get worse. And by the way, that same pattern plays out where uh, people of color are also more likely to want to work from home than come into the office. And so that similar pattern has the potential to play out there as well if they don't do anything. But this lack of information in, in a sense of not feeling informed and not being able to evaluate and acknowledge the contributions that people are making is one of the biggest risks that we're facing as we move into a more remote hybrid uh, sort of working environment.
0: And what, I guess, what are the conversations that are happening at the executive level? How, what do we see as the fix to that or the solution?
1: Yeah, you, you know, there's certainly one part of the solution, which is simply um, being aware of the problem. Right? And so if you realize that these sorts of things are occurring and problematic, then what you are likely to find uh, and what you are likely to do is a lot of the tools that you've done and used before around adverse impacts for different things, You just have to start applying that in additional ways and new ways around how people are working in addition to some of their um, uh, demographic characteristics that are there. Uh, But the second part of it is, uh, and what we're starting to see some companies do, is rely on new types of technology to better understand uh, which employees are making bigger contributions. So one of the things that's really fascinating to me is, uh, with the shift to remote and hybrid work, uh, so much of our interactions have moved from in person to video, and that creates a problem in the sense that, well, I'm not really sure what people are doing as a manager, are they really working? So hard I don't see them at their desk, like you know, what, what's going on there? However, that same technology has got the ability to give us new and better insights in terms of how people are performing. So, let me just give you an example. Um, there's uh new technologies out there that during a video call can track. Everyone's facial expressions, take all of the conversation that occurs, turn it into text and put analytics on it. And then the combination of all those sorts of things, you can basically look at who's making the biggest contributions in this meeting. So if I speak and everyone else nods along and it's like, oh, very smart, then I would get more performance points to show that I was having a bigger contribution. In contrast, if I were to speak, and everyone else sort of like turn away or shake their head or roll their eyes or do other stuff like that, then I would get negative performance points. So um, it sounds kind of creepy and maybe it is uh, in some ways, but the direction that we're going in the world that we're heading into, there's gonna be more technology-based evaluation of the work that we're doing to help us understand the contributions that any individual is in fact making Uh, And and what I just described, it's not just at the leading edge, it's several steps in front of that, and it's like at the very painful bleeding edge part of it. And so, you know, we're not saying get rid of your managers and replace them with video recordings of everybody. Yeah. Um, But uh, uh, those sorts of technologies exist, uh, and they're going to start to find their way into um, how we're understanding our employees and the contributions that our employees are making. So it's an awareness, it's a technology question, it's a communication question, Uh, it's an ethics question. A lot of stuff goes into solving that,
0: understanding that. Well, and that's, yeah, that's interesting. And I know it's been heading that direction in a number of different ways.
1: Yeah.
0: And and people leadership has always been seen as a soft skill. So I think a lot of people are going to have a hard mindset shift around having AI and algorithms really determine some of what are the typically considered soft skills. Yeah. Um, and, and what about, uh, like, how, how does that happen with, uh, fit in with the people writing the algorithms? If there's a bias written into the well, algorithms. Sure.
1: Yeah, no, it is, um, uh, one company we're working with, um, tell you a bit of a funny story. Uh, um, they, uh, this was kind of summer of last year and, um, Uh, it's it's not about specifically about the algorithms, but kind of better understanding how to work and communicate and and talk to employees about And um, it was an insurance company and they have a call center where a lot of their employees kind of manage calls. Uh, It's really easy to measure their performance in terms of number of calls that they get through, error rate, speed that they do, those sorts of things. So like real simple, straightforward performance measures. And um, uh, they started tracking their employees as they started working from home. And the concern was like, again, you know, are people actually gonna be productive or not? And what they found that was really interesting was um, employees who were working from home on average were just as productive and not more so than coming to the office. So like another data point I was talking about. But one click further was what they realized is some employees were much more productive in the morning, others were much more productive in the afternoon. Some were more productive if they worked for an hour, took a break, some were productive if they worked for two hours, took a break, like all sorts of different patterns. For so I was talking to them and they're like we figured out this awesome thing like we can now tell our employees and give them suggestions about where to, when to work what are the times that are best for them like all that sort of stuff and they're gonna be more productive uh they're probably gonna be able to work less hours and still get as much done this is gonna be great and I had to talk to them. I was like well did you tell them you were tracking all this information they're like no why would we tell them we were doing that And it's like well I understand you were not telling them because you want to see what their performance looked like, and you're like, Hawthorne effect, yeah, I get it. But now if you're going to use that data to then make decisions for them, don't you think they sh- are going to get upset if you find out, like, all of a sudden you've been tracking them and, like, turning on their camera on their laptop as they've been working and all that sort of stuff? Uh, and so what they had to go back and do is um, uh, uh, tell them where they're going to start doing this and collect the same data again, basically have the same results, and then they could tell them what's going on. But the bigger point here is um, with this technological infusion in terms of how work gets done and how we're measuring and understanding people, one of the things that's really, really important to do is just to tell our employees what, in fact, we're doing, to communicate to them about what our intent is, what we're trying to accomplish, why we're trying to accomplish it, uh, what the data looks like, how it's helping you make decisions about how to manage the workforce and so on. And then also helping them understand how the behaviors impact that data one way or another, because if we don't have that sort of ethical approach to the data we're collecting from our employees, the the approach that we're taking in terms of using AI to manage things and so on, really bad things are going to happen. Maybe not to us, but one of the other companies that we might work with, and that's going to have a spillover effect on us. So one of the most important things that companies need to be doing now is having a... I didn't call it whatever you want, but a chief data ethics officer. Um, uh, uh, They need to have their own version of the 10 commandments about their employee data, about what it shall be used for and what it shall not be used for, their own uh, kind of conceptual bill of rights, their, you know, their Magna Carta, whatever it is, whatever analogy you'd like, Uh, but something that they clearly communicate to employees, here's what it is, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, and here are the rights that you as an employee have and the lines we're not going to cross. That is going to be absolutely critical for companies to build and develop as we're moving into a world that just has a lot more technology that's impacting our understanding of employees and the sort of work that they're doing.
0: That's, uh, yeah. And, and with so much so much data being collected, how it's used, how it's implemented, I, I love those points. One thing that we work with clients on quite often, it's around Health and well-being of the organization, as well as the individual employees, and when we talk about performance increases, one of the biggest benefits for, or boosts of impor- performance is helping people just live well and be well. Um, what overall well-being? If someone's fatigued and you know they're not sleeping well and not taking care of their body, they're they're going to perform poorly, to sure. say the least, and. I know with uh, learning and development within companies, a lot of times it's just focused on uh, work skills or career industry related skills. But we've started to see more companies now looking towards uh, teaching people personal performance skills. Yeah. every everything from planning and organization to things like you mentioned when, when they're most productive are they most productive in the morning how to batch tasks effectively and and companies are starting to look at setting up their work days to allow employees to perform at their best Mm -hmm. instead of hey we've got you know 24 straight meetings back to back on zoom and you know you might have three minutes to go use the washroom at some point but that's about it and so what, what, are you, what are you seeing in the data related to that and like learning and development and yeah. restructuring the, uh, I guess, not just hybrid, but even in the office work days?
1: Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a lot going on around that. Uh, one of the most important things is working with employees to help them understand, uh, and kind of, you can imagine a two by two, which is uh, work I do, work I do together, Uh, work that I need to be with other people to do or work I don't need to be with other people to do, right? So there's collaborative work I could do asynchronously, which would be in one of those quadrants. There's work that I do by myself without other people, which is another one. But there is other work, which is I can only do it when I'm physically with other people, right? And you have to think about kind of what that two by two looks like. And one of the things that's really important about being successful in a hybrid world is helping people understand what work to do where. Um, Because if that's misaligned... Then you're going to have a disaster. So if employees think they can do this work from home, but their manager wants them to be in the office, then there's going to be problems. If the manager thinks they can do it from home, but the employee thinks they have to be in the office, then it's going to be well, why do I have to come in to do this? Like all sorts of questions. That's like helping people understand what tasks to be where and with who is really important. But one of the other major shifts that we're seeing uh, that's really really interesting is that companies are realizing. A full picture of wellness of their employees is not just about the employee. It's about the employee's family and the employee's community. Um, And one of the things that we've really seen and learned and observed through time is that um, there's lots that I can do for that person who works for me. There's even more I can do for their family. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, There's a financial services company that we work with in the UK. And what they've actually done is they've shifted to a virtual learning platform, um, but the schools in where their uh, uh, corporate university was didn't have enough space to have kids go to school and socially distance, so they had to, those kids had to have kind of two days in, three days at home, so, like. so what the company did was actually just opened up their corporate university to the schools in the community and said just like, just use this space, so those schools could then go in there and spread out, and they were able to get kids in school, in person, in a safe way, right? So, that's a way that they really made a good positive impact on the company. Another example, just again from a learning and development perspective, um, there's some companies that we've worked with, and what they've actually done is they've opened up their LD platform to not just their employees, but the spouses and loved ones of their employees. So, now you can go on that corporate platform if you're married to someone who happens to work there and then learn the latest programming skills or financial acting skills or whatever it might be. So, they're not just making that person. They're not just upskilling that person, they're upskilling that person's family. And if you've ever been in a situation where your spouse is unemployed or underemployed, that creates a lot of stress, for sure. Um, And if you can help someone's spouse find a job, you're creating an employee for for a lifetime. Uh, Just Another example, Um, a lot of companies, uh, when their employees travel, they have like a a toll-free number that you can call in case of emergency. So what uh, some uh, uh, companies that we work with, they're basically giving that number to their uh, employees' children who are going to university. So if something happens to them while they're at university, they can call that number to help them out if they need it. And And the reality is like hardly anybody called, but if you're an employee, knowing that there's a lifeline in case of emergency just takes away a lot of your mental stress from that perspective. So the bigger point here is not necessarily those specific examples that are interesting, but the bigger point is, as you're thinking about creating a truly holistic wellness program, yes, absolutely think about how you can help that employee in terms of um, support that you provide for them, skill building, uh, coaching, uh, mental health breaks, like all those things matter enormously. But if you wanna have an even bigger impact, Ask yourself the question, how can you help that person's family and community? Because if you do that, then you can have an even bigger impact in terms of uh, helping your employees uh, overall wellness from a very holistic perspective. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I can see that being even more beneficial to entry-level employees as well, who yeah. maybe maybe don't come with a pre-existing educational background. They're, they're not as experienced in the industry. They they're younger, and so how, how do you start that development at a young age and, and really foster it yeah. over time? There's
1: One other really interesting one, um, there's a company that we work with, a large employer in a small community. And one of the things that they realized early on in the pandemic was um, uh, a lot of their employees who are married and had the same address started to have different addresses. Um, at a greater rate than they did before the pandemic. So their married couples were getting divorced at a higher rate um, once they were forced to be with each other all the time. Uh, And so one of the things that because of that, that they started offering to anyone was um, uh, marital couples counseling as part of their their overall uh, wellness program. Now, when you do these sorts of things, you have to be a little bit careful because you don't want to be sending emails to your employees where you're like, Hey, Tim, I noticed you've been uh, fighting with your partner lately. You up for some couples counseling? Um, that might be a line that's a little bit too, uh, too far to, to cross. Uh, but are there other things that you can recognize about what's going on with your workforce that gives you a sense of, are there new types of uh, support that you want to be providing to your employees to, to help them out?
0: Well, and that, that's a huge part of uh, benefits plans in general is just making people aware that certain services mm-hmm. exist because so many so many services go unused or underutilized ac- across companies and they, companies say, oh, we have this program, but maybe 2% of people use it.
1: Well, th- this is actually a really important point because the way that we evaluate the ROI a lot of a lot of those programs is based upon usage. And we say, well, not a lot of people use it. So therefore it's not very valuable, w- which at some level is true, but you have to take a step back and say, where is value actually generated? And value is generated in, from an employee perspective when you look at engagement metrics, employee satisfaction metrics, and like that. Knowing that those programs are available if needed is what has the equal impact on employee engagement, equal uh, to actually using the programs. So what you wanna be thinking about with these programs is evaluating the awareness that you've got of the portfolio of programs not just the ROI based on usage of any specific program from that perspective. Because the other benefit, if you really build this portfolio awareness of what's going on, then what you also find is employees say, well, I know about this group of programs and I know my company does a lot to help me. I've got this unique problem. I bet they've got something like it. But if they don't know there's a portfolio of programs available, and you haven't done that awareness building of that portfolio, then when their unique situation comes up, they're gonna say, well, my, I'm sure my company, like they're not going to even think about your company in terms of being able to help them out. That's why the real and most important measure, when you think about impact on employee engagement is not usage of the programs, but it's awareness of the programs and driving awareness of the programs is absolutely critical. But, and in most situations, it's terribly low in terms of employee awareness for those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, and th- that was exactly the point I was trying to make too. I think in a lot of the larger companies, there's a team of people that are analyzing those stats and they have that information there and they can promote because they have the resources. Whereas in the smaller to medium companies, they might offer those things and it's part of the plan, but then they don't have someone who's responsible for driving that, uh, that awareness or the usage in, in the programs. Yeah.
1: And, And you know, there's solutions to that, right. Which is, uh, You might not have the resources to drive awareness of each different program, but you can use your company values to drive awareness that you care about your employees. So uh, like if you're the CEO, for example, in every town hall that you've got, if you're just to spend two or three minutes saying like, hey, we care about you as employees, and you matter to us, and here's an example of what we could do, but just constantly repeat the message of, we care about you. Uh, then then you will get in the back of their head. It's like, oh, they, they do want to help me. And then that might help kind of get them to come to water, if you want kind of get the horse to go to water, whatever that analogy is, uh, mm-hmm. where they know because you care that there's things that are available, rather than having to know the specific thing uh, that's there. But just, just let them know that you care, that they actually matter. Go beyond like, our employees are our most important asset to... Uh, uh, actually doing
0: something about it. Well, and that has to be driven up by action and by oh. examples and following up, They call it the integrity of following through with what you say.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and it's, it's like you really want to know what your values are uh, when they're tested. Um, it's really easy to say that stuff matters, uh, but when you have to make real decisions about it, that's when you know stuff actually matters.
0: Yeah, and this last 18 months, we've seen that in spades, the companies have been called to task and many of them have stepped up dram- very well. Then there are some that, some that haven't and have maybe bungled it in, in certain ways. <laughs> um, and let, let's talk a little bit about, the, you, you work a lot with the CHRO role and mm-hmm. supporting them and their leadership teams. And earlier we chatted a bit about how not all companies have a CHRO role. In the organization, it's typically a VP of HR, but how have what have you seen in terms of how the conversation around employee performance and well-being changes when a company has that role, that C level role?
1: Yeah, you know, it um, uh, I think it comes down to a couple of things. I think it comes down to uh, are we doing a series of talent management practices for our employees or are we uh, Changing the lives of our employees. Um, there was uh, this was back in August of last year, give or take. And um, I remember uh, there's this guy I know. He's a CFO. Uh, he's curmudgeony and he's pretty mean, to be honest. Um, and also <laughs> the whole thing, right? He's like, he's like the type of guy that um, if uh, you're making a movie in Hollywood. And the producer is like, find me a CFO. And they'll be like, I know the guy. Like, he's mean. He's like, rah rah rah, rah. like he's that guy. Uh, he found a perfect job for himself, which is great. And um, I talked to him every once in a while, and uh, he called me up and he goes, Hey Brian, what's up? He's like, I've learned something. And I go, What have you learned? And I thought, given his background, it's gonna be like, Oh, there's a way to allocate the cost of capital or arbitrage between these interest rates and like financial wizardry and like billions of dollars right like Scrooge McDuck swimming in like gold bullion and his giant pile of money like sort of thing he was going to go and he's like I- I've learned something like, what and he goes uh, I- I've learned that the people that work for me are, are human beings and I was like really and he goes, yeah, they've got like, lives and families and kids. And those things are important to them. It's like, yeah. And he goes, yes, yeah, so I've had this radical realization that they're not just workers for me. They're people that come into my office and, and I talk to and, and, and they just happen to be part of their lives working for me. So the reason why I share that story is I think it kind of gets to the, sometimes the difference when companies have a head of HR versus when they don't. They have this realization that there's people that happen to be working for them that have lives and needs and wants and dreams and desires and hopes and all that sort of stuff. And when they don't, they have employees. So you want to be asking yourself a question, like, do you, do you have workers who are there from, you know, available nine to five to do work? Or do you have people that happen to work for you? And if you've got a head of HR or not, which of those two beliefs do you wanna have? Uh, if you have a head of HR, you're more likely to have the, the one where you've got people that happen to be working for you rather than just workers. But that I think is really the question. And, and you know, one of the biggest takeaways for me from this last experience, these last 18 months or so, is just um, do you have workers or do you have people? If you have human beings, that, that radical idea that uh, there's people that happen to be working for me and they happen to be human beings with real lives, real concerns, real issues, real needs. And uh, what type of company do you want to be? Uh, that, that, I think, in so many ways, how you answer that question defines so much of the decisions that you then make about the wellness investments you want to make, the rewards decisions you want to have, the culture you want to create why you should have an office building or not, what is the purpose of it, all those sorts of things. But that, at its core, I think, is the most fundamental question. And it seems like there's an obvious answer, but when you step back and think about it, have you really been acting that way or not? Um, And kind of those those come to to, to truth moments um, are really important for companies to to work through right now in particular. Uh, As we've gone through what we've gone through, Delta variant, who knows what's gonna happen next, open up workplaces, who knows what's going to happen next. Do you have workers or do you have people? Do you have workers or do you have human beings? Um, And being crystal clear on what your point of view is there uh, uh, will help guide you more so than any other decision you can possibly make.
0: For sure. And that transitions well into sort of what we're seeing now with the reopening. Do we send people back to the office? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there mandates uh, uh, on on how to... I guess, proceed. Now you had mentioned something, uh, in a article I read from, from you, it was about talking about a K shaped recovery from COVID Mm -hmm. and that some people are thriving and others aren't. Can you talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. You know, um, when you look at, uh, uh, workforces as a whole, uh, there's a lot of focus and attention around, um, the challenges that people have had and they're very real, uh, in terms of uh, kind of feelings of isolation, uh, loneliness, mental health challenges, like very real. Uh, there's also other people that have absolutely thrived working in a remote environment. And we see companies making um, uh, a variety of mistakes as they're thinking about their office reopening strategy. And the two most common ones are one, well, once we get this COVID thing passed, that's where we to go back to normal. And we'll be good to go. And and that's a little nonsensical when you think about it, because in what other decision would you say, well, we've had this fundamentally different experience for the last two years so that we're going to take zero from and pretend didn't happen? Like employees don't think that way. They've got like that, that has forever changed how we're going to work. So we can't go back to where we were before. The other mistake that companies have made or and are making is to say, well, here's what we loved about being in person here's what we love about remote, let's just put them together and that's our hybrid strategy. You know, the, the best analogy that I've got is, um, I love tacos, I love spaghetti, spaghetti tacos seems like a terrible idea,
0: right? And that that's the equivalent of- That's my favorite dinner.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> that, I destroyed it for you, I destroyed it for you. Um, so uh, if you don't like spaghetti tacos, do you like taco spaghetti? Maybe it works better that way, well, I'm not sure. Um, But what you gotta do is think about what is the the environment that you wanna create that helps people that work in very different ways thrive. Because if you go back to where we were before, the people that have really benefited and thrived in in a more remote experience are gonna suffer. Uh, If we go to a fully remote environment, then the people that have been struggling for the last 18 months are gonna continue to struggle and that doesn't work either. Uh, So what we have to do is Redesign our organizations and redesign our work for a hybrid world, rather than trying to adapt our in-world work to a virtual world. We have to design for a hybrid, not adapt to hybrid. Hybrid, and that that that's important to manage the, this case-shaped experience. Uh, so that's kind of one part. And then as we're adapting to what hybrid looks like, you know, the 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 question that emerges more often than not is, uh, well, can't we just get rid of a lot of our office space? And yeah, we can get rid of some of it. But what we really need to be doing is giving that office space a new job, a new purpose. Because while we've talked a lot about how performance isn't any different, one of the things that is different in a remote and hybrid world is turnover is higher. And people that work remote and hybrid are more likely to quit. Uh, and that, that's true for a couple reasons. One, if you work remote, you're no longer constrained by location to where you could work, so you should have more choices, you have more opportunity, which makes it more, 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 makes it more like that it's a old play. Um, but the other part of it is people that work remote or hybrid have weaker social connections with their coworkers. They're less likely to say they've got a friend at work. Those ties aren't as strong, and it's easy to quit your company. It's easy to quit your manager. It's hard to quit your friends. So what you need to be thinking about uh, to support all types of employees and make sure that there aren't some that thrive and some that that struggle is how do we redesign our work and our workplaces to create those social connections and to build those emotional relationships amongst employees, not just the rational relationships that are associated with us doing our tasks. And as you're thinking about that reopening strategy and that office and workplace redesign strategy, You've got to be asking yourself, how are we going to change the experience in our workplace to make it social and engaging so people can build those relationships that are here? Because otherwise, if you don't, your performance will be fine, but your retention will be bad. And that's not a good outcome either. But you have to really design social interactions to build that retention.
0: Do you have some examples of, uh, companies that you've seen are, you know, you don't have to use names, but that are doing that well and that are, have designed that or are in the process of designing they, it?
1: Yeah, they're in the process. So some that have, and the companies are trying different things and to be honest. I don't know what is the right answer there, but, uh, here there's things that companies are doing to try to make it, make that happen. Um, uh, Salesforce, for example, they bought a ranch and they, their plan is to send, uh, once a quarter everybody on that team to that ranch to spend a week per quarter there. Now there's probably not a lot of companies that can go out and buy a ranch. Um, I get that. Uh, But the point being, can you create at least dedicated time in a different location that's not where they do their work? And so kind of one of the big tenants is it needs to be in a different space. It can't, you can't make your workspace, your social space. Right. Um, So that's kind of one important component of it. Uh, But the, the, question you should be asking yourself is, how do we create a space where our employees would rather come to our space to do work than stay at home to do work when it matters? And that, that's an important step, an important question to be asking yourself. It's still very early in terms of how companies are starting to think about that. Um, but what I feel pretty confident about is uh, just changing your offices to have a bunch of uh, uh, TVs in them where a lot of people can dial in via video is probably not gonna work. To create those social and emotional connections that you need
0: to create. Yeah, it's fine for conducting meetings, but you're not.
1: Yeah, for sure, you're not like,
0: you know, you're not going to bond over that. Like
1: all, all those Zoom happy hours have worked out so well. Um, yeah,
0: exactly. That, <laughs> that, that, that's
1: we just want more of that. That's that's clearly what we want to add from that
0: perspective. Awesome. Now, with the uh, you know I, we have to touch on it a little bit, but we don't have to go too much detail. Uh, Vaccine mandates with companies, we're seeing lots of that. I know in Canada, Canadian government just said for all federal employees, they're mandating vaccines. Now there's been pushback from the unions. And so what, uh, what types, of you, what, what data and research are you seeing out of that?
1: Yeah, this is something that's been changing really quickly. Um, back in January, only 2% of companies were planning on mandating vaccines. Um, in June, that uh, was about 89%. Uh, last week, it was up to 16%. So it's certainly moving in one direction. You can look at that and say, well, uh, it's only 16%, but it's small. Or you could say, well, it's gone from 2% to 16%, and that's pretty big. Uh, That sort of changed from that perspective. You know, what's interesting is um, uh, when you take a step back and say, like, why are people uh, mandating vaccines now? And one of the biggest things that has shifted is that as companies try to reopen their workplaces, one of the things that they found is that employees said, I might be vaccinated, but I don't wanna go back to a workplace unless I know everyone else is vaccinated. So one of the biggest shifts that's there is companies try to reopen their workplaces and nobody came back. And so mandate vaccines to prove that safe from that perspective. Interestingly though, um, a lot of companies are very hesitant to mandate vaccines for their frontline employees, their hourly employees, the person in the store uh, and so on. And part of that is, the war for talent right now for that segment is so intense they can't afford it from a time perspective because, you know, depending on what data you look at and where you happen to be located, you might have between 20 and 50% of that segment not vaccinated. And are you going to, um, uh, if you're trying to hire them, are you going to wait effectively six weeks before they can start working? And, and the answer is probably no in a lot of those cases. Uh, so there's very few mandates around that segment of the workforce. But, but here's the real question, right? Which is, um, are you actually gonna fire someone if they don't get vaccinated? You know, I was talking with um, a friend of mine who's a financial planner uh, many years ago, and I was like, hey, I should buy an apartment and rent it out. Like, what do you think about that? And he's like, you know, you could do that, but here's the question you have to ask yourself. If there's a single parent who's lost their job and can't make rent, are you going to kick them out? And I was like, no, I, I can't do that. I'm like, You should not be a landlord. <laughs> and he was right. Um, uh, it's the same thing with the vaccine mandate. If you're not going to fire people who don't get it, you shouldn't put a mandate in. Because if you have a mandate that you don't enforce, then it's just meaningless. And worse, if your mandate says uh, you're not allowed to come into the workplace, if you're not vaccinated, you get going to continue to work from home then it's like, well, I'm not vaccinated then because then I get to work from home and you can't force me, right? So if you're going to pursue a mandate, you also have to be willing to fire people, even if they're your best performer, even if you're your, your highest producing salesperson, your best general manager. If you're not willing to fire that person, if they are not vaccinated, you should not put that mandate in. And there's plenty of companies that, that are willing to do that, but as you're making that decision to put a mandate in or not, are you willing to fire your best sales performer? Are you willing to hire your best general manager if they're not vaccinated? And for yeah, that yeah. reason alone, maybe, maybe not, but that's the question you really should, one of the questions you should be asking yourself about. this.
0: Well, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out over the coming few months. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think, well, we're going to have a whole ream of new <laughs> data and uh, company, uh, I yeah. guess, decisions to to make uh, to to look at for the future. Exactly. And we'll See how that goes.
1: Yeah, and you know what we know this month. Uh, all that I know about what I know this month is that next month it's probably going to be different. Yeah.
0: So, uh, based on all the the stuff we've talked about and what you've seen happening, for companies trying to really provide the best health and well-being for their employees what what are the top one to two things that they can they can do that doesn't require massive infrastructure changes uh, yeah. how, how do they benefit employee health and well-being the most?
1: I I think, I think there's two things to, to really be thinking about. One is um, this radical idea that your employees are actually human beings keeping that in mind. And then two, the other question to really ask yourself is, am I being fair to my employees? Um, because as we go into this next generation of work and this hybrid experience, there's gonna be all sorts of situations where things are inequitable. Like who gets to work hybrid and who doesn't? Because by the nature of some jobs you can and others you can't. For the people who can't work hybrid, what are you gonna do? Is that just you picked a bad job or are you gonna do something else for them? But Thinking about how you're being fair and equitable uh, to your employees, those two questions or two things, like they're human beings and how are we fair to our human beings, our fellow human beings? Apply the first thought, the second question will guide you to a good result in 90% of the decisions that you make.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. You've been a wealth of knowledge and insight, and uh, I appreciate you joining on the show. Uh, now, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so uh, so Brian Kropp, chief of research at Gartner's HR Practice. Uh, find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, any of those sorts of places. Uh, and more than willing to connect and have a good conversation uh, about some of these issues because uh, nobody knows the right answer right now, but we're all learning together. And now more than ever, uh, the chance to learn from each other is one of the most important things that that we can take advantage
0: of. And you're asking more questions and getting more information uh, collated and, re, uh, and research uh, than almost anyone that. else out there. So,
1: and
0: with that. Yep. All right. awesome! And I'll post your uh, details on the in the show notes, and uh, people can con- contact you through there. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Working Well podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your experiences and how you've applied tips from the show to your daily life, so please keep us posted on your progress. To stay up to date with new episode releases, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list by emailing podcast at freshgroup.ca and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And once again, I'm Tim Boris with Fresh Wellness Group.